Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Political campaigns are increasingly being funded by super PACs and nonprofit corporations. Now the question is, is all this spending just a form of free speech or is it buying some kind of influence? Welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Suraj Patel and with me today is Professor Richard Berfault of Columbia Law School, a leading expert in the field of money and politics. Welcome Professor, it's great to have you today. Great, glad to be here. Why do we need to regulate money and politics in the first place? Why do we need to regulate how much a candidate can spend or receive? Really, there are sort of two big ideas out there, I think, for for why we have been regulating money and politics for a very long time. One has to do with the impact of money on an election, who's going to win, on and the different stages, primaries and general elections, and how and how fair the electoral competition is amongst the candidates in terms of reaching out to the voters. And the second, and maybe even the bigger question, is what's the impact of the money that's funding the election on the government that happens after the election? Uh, to what extent are elected officials going to be uh, p- particularly attentive to the interests of their donors and their financial backers when they're in the government? So those are really the two things. In order to win an election, you need money. You don't need to have the most money. It's probably good to get on the table. You need to have enough money to get your message out. How much that is is going to depend on whether you're running for city council or you're running for president, depending on the context, depending on other things. But you need to be able to get your message out, communicate with the voters. And so how much money can a person raise, how much can he spend on an election? Well, under our system, uh, the Supreme Court has established this, there's no limits on how much you can spend. Supreme Court, we could talk more about this, but the Supreme Court has basically said that spending limits are unconstitutional because they limit the ability of not just candidates, but political parties and anybody who's interested in the election in getting out their arguments, their facts, their efforts to persuade other people. So the candidates can, raise, can spend as much as they want. They can also raise as much as they want, but the one thing that uh, the court has said is permissible on that federal law limits and most states limits is the amount of money a candidate can raise from any one particular donor. There's the concern that if you're, if you're totally dependent or you're getting a huge amount of money from one specific donor, you're gonna be unduly grateful, uh, for lack of a better word, to that person. So we do have the federal government, Congress, and most of the states have some limits on how much you can get from one person, but no limits as to how much you can raise altogether. So the larger amount of money you raise from a single person, the bigger the chances of quid pro quo. Yeah, and, and it even goes beyond quid pro quo, because quid pro quo gives this element of there's a specific deal. I'll give you $100,000 if you will do dot, dot, dot. I think this is more concerned of not, not the literal quid pro quo, but the, you'll be, unduly attentive, unduly grateful that before you vote on something in that person's industry or field, you'll check with them. If that person has a particular something they want moved, want stopped or passed, you'll be very, very attentive. That thing could be something that that's not even on the horizon, you know, in the campaign, but mm-hmm. comes up two years later. So a quid pro quo, you say it's very specific. I think this is, it's more like a metaphor. It's more like in the long run, there'll be this kind of back and forth, kind of reciprocal gratitude that that we're concerned about. Well, here's where I think it's interesting, is at that local level, at that Mm -hmm. smaller race. So 
smaller races, when we say that spending is a form of expression, mm -hmm. when a group, an outside group, or lobbyist group, say from the tobacco industry mm -hmm. or solar power industry or whatever, spends on behalf of a candidate or contributes to a candidate somewhere, is that really a form of expression? Well, I like to think of it two ways. One is um, the candidate spending. It's not, I wouldn't say that money itself is speech, but in our large, complicated, expensive society, you need to spend money to get your speech out. And that's how I put it. I mean, people have often said the Supreme Court said money is speech. I think that's a little unfair. I think what they've said is you need to be able to spend money to get your message out. And that's, I think, how, that's how I see it, is that it's expensive to buy airtime, it's expensive to travel, it's expensive to get up a computer operation, it's expensive to do a get out the vote drive. Elections cost money. Um, and of course, when, the, when there are supportive groups, a lot of the time what they are paying for is TV ads. The TV ads are speech. We may not think a lot of what they're saying, but the TV ads, the radio ads, the, the messages that they're sending out, the robocalls, they're actually saying something. And so, so when the supportive group spends to uh, get a message out, the speech we're talking about is their right to get their message out on behalf of a candidate. Right, right. And does that outside group talk or work directly with the candidate well, on what they can advertise? They're not supposed to. Uh, so this gets it to the idea that we have this really kind of odd system where the Supreme Court has upheld limits on how much any individual or group or organization can give to a candidate, but has not, but has not upheld spending limits. Has said that anybody can spend as much as they want. So we've created a system so, in which groups that, you know, you could, once you hit your ceiling on what you could give to a candidate, we, you know, people say max out. Once you hit the maximum you can give to a candidate, you still have money, you still want to support the candidate, what do you do? You spend, quote unquote, independently. The, the legal term, is independent spending. The trick is, what do we mean by independent? So I'm a candidate. Mm -hmm. I need to raise money. Mm -hmm. The system, the Supreme Court has now created a system wherein I can't receive all the money I need right. to get my message heard if I can raise only at, say, $3,000 a pop. That's not completely true. I mean, some candidates have done very well uh, raising large amounts of money from relatively small donations. Ron Paul in, was it 2012, I think, when he ran, he raised a lot of money, relatively small amounts of money. Barack Obama in 2008, he got a lot of big donations, but he got a very large amount of small donations. Bernie Sanders has raised a lot of money, relatively small donations, to making but him to keep up, But to keep up and compete, uh, what do I do? What are my other options? Do I, I form a, an outside committee? Right. I have my friends form an outside right. committee. Is you this have, what we're talking about when we say your, super PACs? You have your friends, right. So uh, the super PAC, uh, we, super, we'll tell, why, we'll tell you what makes it super in a second, I'll tell you. PAC stands for political action committee. That dates back to the 1940s when Congress imposed limits on, on the ability of labor unions to participate in election campaigns. And so what the leading labor union at the time, the CIO, came up with was the idea of we won't spend our union treasury money what we'll do is we'll contact all of our members and we'll let each, each of our members to kick in some money to a separate fund called the Political Action Committee. And instead of using union treasury funds, individual members will be pushed to make contributions into the fund and we'll use that fund. So that is what a PAC is. It mostly came up in the context of unions and corporations initially. 
Uh, federal law has for a long time prohibited corporations from actually contributing directly to candidates, and since the 40s it's prohibited unions. Wait a minute, but I thought that that is no longer the case. That law still on the books. The prohibition on corporations and unions giving directly to candidates uh, and parties is still law. Uh, but what they came up with, and which the what Congress upheld, and Congress legalized ultimately, and the Supreme Court has upheld, is the idea that the corporation can't put its treasury funds in. It, it's, it take from its own treasury. But the corporation can solicit its officers, directors, and shareholders. A union can solicit its members and ask them to make a contribution to a separate fund called the PAC. The PAC can make contributions to candidates. And the PAC can make contributions to candidates in unlimited amounts? No, the, the PAC's contributions to candidates are limited. The PAC's spending, if, if the PAC separately, and this is sort of a separate issue, instead of giving to a candidate, just spends to, in support of that candidate or in opposition to another one without coordinating, that's the technical legal term, without coordinating with the candidate they're backing, Supreme Court has said that spending by the PAC, just like a spending by any individual or any other organization, that can't be limited. So the classical PAC, there were, were, small, were donations from officers, directors, shareholders, from companies to a trade association, from union members to the union, Federal law since the 1970s capped the amount of money that the shareholder or the officer or the union member could give to the corporate PAC or the union PAC. What happened to create super PACs is in 2010, following the Citizens United case, but independent of it, one of the big federal appeals courts, the court in the DC circuit, in a case called Speech Now, said, well, if the Supreme Court has said that unlimited independent spending can't be limited, can't be, that cannot constitutionally be capped, then why should we be able, why should Congress be able to cap donations to an organization that only engages in unlimited independent spending and doesn't give to a candidate? The idea is we could cap donations to PACs because PACs give to candidates. And it was a way of preventing kind of a backdoor circumvention of the caps on donations to candidates. But if you, but if you have an organization, a PAC, that vows that will it will engage only in independent spending. And then later there was a little refinement. If they had instead, they create an account within the organization and they vow that that account will only be used for independent spending. At that point the court said, donations to that account can't be limited because it's being used for independent spending, which the Supreme Court has said is constitutionally protected. That's what a super PAC is. What's the is. difference uh, with that independent spending? compared to the candidate spending. Okay, the idea of an independent spending is that it is independent in the sense that, this is I think language from the Supreme Court, its activities are not prearranged or coordinated with the candidate. They could be quite parallel to the candidate. They could be echoing the candidate's messages. Okay, what are the odds we could, how do we find out whether these have been coordinating? If you could find that they were <laughs> meetings in which they sat down with the, the, the independent committee of the PAC and said, you know, uh, you PAC, you're gonna advertise in the following three states and we're gonna advertise in the other three, these other three states. Or you, the PAC, you're gonna, you're gonna follow, you're gonna work on XYZ issue, you're gonna work on taxes and social security. But it's like rooting out collusion. Right, Extremely yeah, it's, difficult. it's very hard to prove. It's Nearly very, impossible. It's very hard to find. And, and indeed the, the courts and regulators have said, the mere fact that there's some contact does not establish coordination. What can you say in uh, independent spending? Are there any restrictions to, can I say, 
you can vote, say vote for Richard Buffal. You could say you could engage in, and the technical term is express advocacy. Independent spending can can flat out say uh, vote for X uh, hmm. or vote against Y. Uh, there's no limits. There's no limits on what they can say. They 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 can spend as much as they want, and they can raise as much as they want. The only thing in terms of where, how our laws work is they are subject to disclosure requirements. They are required to report not just their spending but their donors. There are other organizations out there which, by being a little bit more careful with what they say and by holding off from engaging in too much of this, the court calls it express advocacy, by engaging in a more um, carefully phrased statements that don't literally call for the election or defeat of somebody, but do say things that are positive or negative, they may be able to t raise all the money they want, spend all the money they want, and engage in politics, but they may be able to say that they're not even super PACs. They're another kind of organization which may have to report their spending, but they don't have to report their donors. And in the last couple of years, in, in, you know, since the, in the, in the, most of the 2010 decade when this has emerged, uh, that's money often, often called dark money. And dark money is money that's not transparent because the donors to a committee mm -hmm. or to a super PAC, mm -hmm. which is a committee, or a nonprofit right, organization. Right. A super PAC is subject to disclosure. I mean, they from a distance because they, they do express advocacy. Right. So from, from a distance, super PACs and these other organizations, they're usually called five hundred one c organizations because that's the term. That's the section of the tax law that they're organized under. Sure. Uh, they're a, they're a not for profit organization. Um, and they engage in what the tax code calls um, social welfare activities. So and when you say a 501 organization, right. you mean just like a normal charity or nonprofit? Well, there are two kinds of charities. So the classic charity is one where if you give them money, you can get a tax deduction, and they don't pay tax on what you give them. That would be, I don't know, the Red Cross, Red Cross. Uh, or an organization that doesn't engage in any political activity at all. There are other organizations under 501c, like trade associations, labor unions, and these social welfare groups, that you don't get a tax deduction if you give to them, but they still don't pay tax on the income they receive. They're able to take all the contributions they receive and spend them without paying any corporate income tax on them. And that's why, they're, that's why they get the special treatment of the tax law, because what they're doing is not providing income to their so the people who run the organization, but they're being used to support certain kind of uh, public-oriented activities. But a lot of that can be ideological advocacy. So indeed, many uh, charitable organizations have both a 501c3, which is the, the tax-deductible charity, and, the 50, and a uh, companion 501c4, which is the one that also engages in uh, political advocacy, uh, the Sierra Club, for example. Uh, they're both on the left and on the right. They're organizations, some of which are pure charitable, and some of which, which are, are pure advocacy. also engage in advocacy. These nonprofit corporations uh, that are anonymous or transparent, right? They they don't have to disclose to the to the election federal election commission or the public who the donors general, are, who or donors how much are. the donations right. came in. They may have to report their spending if it crosses a certain dollar threshold, which a lot of them do. So they will say, we, we spend $10,000 on an ad on such and such a time. Uh, but when they don't have to report who they're doing. But if are. spending is a form of speech, and I can't trace who made said speech, then why are we calling this a First Amendment right in the first place? 
Do I have the right to make it an anonymous speech? Well, that's a nice question, and that's something that the Supreme Court has debated a lot about. Um, in many cases, the Supreme Court has upheld the right to engage in anonymous speech out of the concern that for unpopular organizations, and the most famous cases involve the NAACP in the 1950s or the Socialist Workers, 1950s and 1960s, for, for very unpopular organizations, if the organization has to disclose its donors, they're gonna be subject to harassment and reprisal. So the Supreme Court has said that there are some situations where you can be anonymous. The court has, however, upheld most campaign finance disclosure laws on the thinking that this is something where once the donations are above a certain threshold. Why would somebody want to make speech and not take credit for that speech? Well, they might want to get credit with the candidate they're backing who would probably know, but the question is why would they not want it to be widely public. known to the public? Uh, a couple of reasons. One is there's some concern that the value of the speech, the effect of the speech, might be undermined if people knew who was saying it. Uh, for example, let's say a trade association, a wealthy group, may think that they may be in this race because they're interested in tax policy or in uh, energy policy. Uh, they're against uh, regulation on climate change. But they might think that the more effective ads have something to do with being soft on crime. So they might take out ads. The ads that they're supporting might be blasting a candidate because that candidate's record on crime or welfare, which they could care less about. Their real interest is energy policy they wouldn't want to be known that they're primarily a big energy group. So, so one is in terms of it might, under, might undercut the effectiveness of their message if people knew who they were. So one is people sometimes knowing who's behind the message might undercut the message, at least from the perspective of the, the spender, the donor. Another might be that the person just doesn't want to be um, inundated by more requests for money from somebody else. Um, and a third, uh, you know, might be that, you know, sometimes if it's an, if it's an unpopular position, you might find yourself uh, the subject of a response, a boycott or something. There are a handful of cases in which, you know, organizations that took, particularly people that, that sell to the public, um, you know, took positions that were seen as unpopular and there were responses to that. There's a famous case involving the Target Company uh, in Minnesota, which gave money to uh, a PAC that was supporting a candidate for governor. Uh, they liked him because they, they, would, they thought his views were on tax policy, but he also had certain views on gay rights, which were very unpopular, and the Target company got targeted uh, for a boycott, and they pulled back. So there'd be situations like that, too. So why is a Target company in the business of donating money to a candidate in the first place? Because if the shareholders of Target Corporation have a monetary interest or a vested interest in tax policy, they can individually donate to said uh, candidate. Now, if there's a blowback for the company of Target, which is a seller mm -hmm. of goods, then I think that just comes with the territory of making your voice heard on and, how those goods are sold. And that's a very legitimate position indeed. Um, Justice Scalia, who was, a, who was normally been a was a critic of a lot of campaign finance regulation, was a big defender, supporter of disclosure, and he had some funny line in one of his opinions about in the land of the free and the home of the brave, people should, should be able to stand by their opinions in public. So you could take that position. Uh, I mean, corporate spending is very controversial, and one of the controversies is what about, what if the shareholders disagree? I mean, one of the virtues of using the PAC is at least it was voluntary donations by shareholders. Um, a lot of people have been concerned with corporate spending that just the corporations are powerful. But one of the important arguments with, cor with uh, corporate spending is 
it is taking shareholder money for positions that not all the shareholders agree with. Right. The position of corporate spending in mm -hmm. political campaigns is one that's not widely shared or universally shared by even corporations themselves. Yep. It is just an additional yeah. headache for many yeah. CEOs. Since this is in the United case, which is obviously very famous, on which the Supreme Court struck down the federal ban on corporate spending and also ultimately all the state bans as well, there has not been that much activity by business corporations. Not nearly as much as many people feared. Partly this reason, it can be unpopular. Can you explain to us what the Citizens United decision actually decided? Sure. So Citizens United is a case decided by the Supreme Court in 2010. Maybe the, possibly the most controversial of all the court's campaign finance cases and you know, one of the most widely known in the general public. It's very interesting how that happened. So what Citizens United literally did was strike down um, a 50-year-old law, 60-year-old law, federal law, uh, which prohibited corporations from spending what I call treasury funds. They're corporate treasuries in federal elections. Uh, on independent spending. Again, there was, a separate, there was a separate law, even older, going back to 1907, that prohibits corporations from donating their treasury funds to candidates. That's still on the books, that hasn't been challenged yet. Or it's been challenged, hasn't gone to the Supreme Court yet. But in the 1940s, this, uh, Congress passed law prohibiting corporations and unions from engaging in any election, federal election spending. And many states had similar laws. Uh, prohibiting corporations or unions or both from spending in state elections. Again, using treasury funds. Uh, they could still create political action committees, PACs, but the amount of money those could spend was limited by the, by the ability to raise donations from shareholders. So once you have a corporation theory, a corporation has an unlimited treasury. So that was decided by the Supreme Court by a 5-4 vote in 2010. The court's thinking, though, really in some ways goes back to their their foundational campaign finance case, a case called Buckley v. Vallejo, which was decided in 1976, and is really all modern campaign finance law comes out of that case. In that case is where the Supreme Court basically said, the First Amendment applies to campaign spending, but there is one justification for limiting campaign money, and that's the prevention of corruption, or the appearance of corruption, which is, and the court said, that's broader than just quid pro quo deals, it's the kind of the possibility of undue influence mm -hmm. that, we, that we talked about earlier. Um, and in that case, the court says, the fear of corruption um, and the appearance of corruption justifies contribution limits. But then, and maybe this is the most controversial part of the case, the court said, but the concern about corruption cannot justify limits on independent spending. So you've created a system wherein you can only raise money in small sums, right. relatively small sums, right. but you can spend unlimited amounts. Correct. So when the court says money like water will always find an outlet, well that's because you have an unlimited amount of water. Right. We have a strange system, and it's been, it's not the system that any, that Congress created. When Congress passed the major campaign finance law, called Federal Election Campaign Act, it was really passed in two parts, in 1971 and then uh, more comprehensively in 1974, right after the Watergate scandal. Uh, Congress sought to limit both contributions and spending in federal elections. Now let's take a break for our MCLE, listeners earning credit in the state of California. For those lawyers, the code for this interview is 071416. Again, that's 071416. And now back to the interview. So campaign finance reform was passed after Watergate. 
Yeah, I mean the hard, some of it was actually passed before, but then it was substantially revised uh, and made stronger in the aftermath of Watergate. Why is that? Although Watergate was not primarily about campaign finance, it was, you know, the, the burglars, the, you know, the dirty tricks. There was a campaign finance piece to it. Uh, the investigation uh, discovered that uh, a significant number of large corporations were illegally making very large donations to the Nixon campaign. Uh, that there was some evidence of some deal-making between either the Nixon White House or other, uh, other federal agencies uh, the, for large contributions in exchange for rather relatively specific decisions involving price supports and an antitrust investigation. A lot of the money that was being used to fund the dirty tricks and those so-called Watergate burglars who broke into the Democratic National Committee came from campaign finance dollars uh, that, were, that were not reported and were kept in certain accounts. So it wasn't literally a campaign finance scandal, but there was a, a kind of a campaign finance piece to it. And, and so they passed both a comprehensive way to limit the amount of money that goes into politics right. and elections, and the Supreme right. Court struck down one half of it, giving us this Rube right. Goldberg system of campaign finance right. that we have. Or maybe just to give a little bit more, there were sort of four big pieces to it. Uh, comprehensive disclosure, contribution limits, spending limits, and public funding for presidential elections. And Congress came close to but didn't pass public funding for congressional elections. Supreme Court upheld the disclosure, it upheld the public funding for the presidential elections, it upheld the contribution limits, but it struck down the spending limits, all the spending that limits. That creates a massive imbalance. And then you have, so you have this problem of potentially unlimited spending, but you have to be able to raise the money in relatively small contributions. And so from the outside will come money right. to supplement your unlimited spending. So you get all sorts of things. You get the rise of self-funded candidates because the Supreme Court specifically struck down there was a specific limit in the, in the campaign finance law that also applied to, the, to your use of your personal wealth. Uh, and the Supreme Court said- That's a big it, expression. It, it's a, well, it's also the court said, the only justification for regulating campaign money, the only one that the Supreme Court recognized is prevention of corruption. Yourself. You can't corrupt yourself. And so there, you can't, you know, if you have a very wealthy candidate, Donald Trump, for example, uh, I, don't know how much, I don't know how much he's truly self-funding, but he can self-fund as much as he wants because that doesn't raise the corruption danger. So you have that. You've got the rise of well, what you could call intermediaries. PACs were very helpful because PACs can give, could, could give larger contributions than individuals at that time. The law, over time, some of the indexing features of the law has made the advantage of a PAC a little bit uh, is, is smaller. But PACs were, became a way of you know, getting money together. People who are called bundlers. Uh, bundlers are influential people who go around to various people interested in government politics and collect checks from them, and they bundle them together, you know, uh, lobbyists and influence peddlers. Because it's really hard to raise millions of dollars in, I'll call them small bills. You might not think of $2,600 as small, but if you're trying to raise $200 million, $2,600 is small or a billion if you're running for president, or a hundred billion if you're running for the Senate in a big state. So it's a lot of work. So PACs and other bundlers. And then the other thing that becomes very important is the use of money that's not regulated because it's not technically about the candidate. It's not technically electioneering. And there's a, another set of Supreme Court decisions that, try, that map out what counts as election-related and subject to limits and what counts as not. And so you begin to get this money that's sort of on the side, sometimes people soft money at one time, unregulated money. And in some ways, the whole, the 40 years after Buckley, 
um, have been how do you deal with the contribution limits? What kinds of evasions are there? Uh, Congress pruned back a lot of this in 2002 when they passed the McCain-Feingold law, which actually uh, imposed, in some ways was a, trying to re restore the original law and kind of work for about six years uh, in which some of the limits, new limits were put into place to make it look more like the old election, uh, the old campaign finance law. And then the system has really more, has increasingly collapsing. And uh, partly because the Supreme Court became, uh, undid some of that uh, in the late 2000s, and partly because uh, politicians have become more creative. And it, campaign finance regulation is kind of an endless process. Yeah. You know, come up with a set of rules, they might work pretty well for one or two election cycles. Uh, politicians and, and donors figure a way around, around it. If you want to keep it effective, you've got to come back and regulate and well, come up with something new. Well, it just seems to me that the logical way to keep that effective is to just limit the amount of spending you can do in a campaign. Well, but the, the, main, the main problem with that, and a lot of countries do that, to, to, be, to be frank, uh, the main problem with that, of course, is defining what's a campaign. Uh, and to what extent, when people, start taking, when people want to start campaigning on tax, take out big ad programs about tax policy, or immigration, which has obviously been a big issue in the, in the 2016 election, or terrorism, um, anything, pick an issue, and people can take out a lot of ads, um, that can clearly affect the political dynamic at some point, it's not going to be electioneering. At some point, you know, there is free speech. Could be issue. There is the right to, of people to take out, you know, to, to engage in, I'll, I'll call it public education. Um, you might not see it as all educational. But to, 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 to engage with each other on know, tax policy, social security, climate change, um, social issues, and, you know, gun control. And it's, at some point, it will have an effect on the election, but not necessarily be electioneering. And so many countries do use spending limits. So it's not like it's out of, it's, uh, including many countries we would consider to be sort of free and democratic. So it's not like it's impossible. But you do get these problems of trying to figure out what do we mean by electioneering. Let's say I decide to give $5 million to a campaign, mm -hmm. to, to a super PAC, on behalf, you're advertising on behalf of a campaign. And you do, and mm -hmm. five other people mm -hmm. do. What are we getting for our $25 million? Well, it depends. Uh, a lot of people did that in the, 20, in the 2012 and 2014 election, didn't get very much. Uh, but what they're hoping that they're gonna get is by pooling, uh, each one could do it on his own, um, but by pooling, so let's say you've got 10 people each kicking in $5 million. By having a pool of $50 million, you can hire the people you think are gonna be experts the political experts, people are experts in crafting messages and in crafting ads, in polling and research, in figuring out what states to advertise. But I mean, more broadly speaking, my the outcome I'm looking for is the is candidate to, winning. Or, it, or, or my... is, is, is to move the agenda, is to affect whether it's through electing candidates or affecting what the candidates talk about. I mean, if you think about the you know the Republican nomination struggle in the 2016 election. They've been talking a lot about immigration in a very specific way. Now, I don't know how much that's, that's probably due to the effect of Trump rather than any particular outside donors, but you, know, you might want to just affect the conversation, the agenda. You've reached the end of part one of this interview. Be sure to check out part two for the rest of the conversation. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. 
Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.